The reality is that every company that collects and retains sensitive personal data is sort of a sitting target for attorneys general and other law enforcement entities who are actively going to be attempting to crack down on people who are seeking, providing, and facilitating abortions. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 21st, 2022. Today, we'll bring you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. When the Supreme Court handed down its opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, overturning Roe v. Wade, the impact of the decision on the internet may not have been at the front of mind for most people thinking through the implications. But in the weeks after the court's decision, it's become clear that the post-Dobbs legal landscape around abortion implicates many questions not only involving data and digital privacy, but also online speech. One piece of model state legislation, for example, would criminalize, quote, hosting or maintaining a website or providing internet service that encourages or facilitates efforts to obtain an illegal abortion. To discuss, Evelyn Duak and I spoke with Evan Greer, the director of the digital rights organization Fight for the Future. She recently wrote an article in Wired with Leah Holland, arguing that Section 230 is a last line of defense for abortion speech online. We talked about what role Section 230's protections have to play when it comes to liability for speech about abortion, and what content moderation looks like in a post-Dobbs world. Whatever you think about the merits of the court's ruling in Dobbs, it's an interesting conversation that sheds light on a rapidly changing legal landscape. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 21st. Online speech and Section 230 after Dobbs. In the aftermath of Dobbs and the overturning of Roe, there's been a lot of discussion about the ramifications this will have for online speech and privacy. Uh, I want to start at the top by acknowledging that this is only one subset of the many, many issues that will be raised as a result of this decision, but it is the subset that is in our wheelhouse and an important one. But before we dig in, I want to help our audience understand where you're coming from and your background in this space. So you're the director of Fight for the Future, a digital rights advocacy organization. Can you tell us a bit about your previous work here? Yeah, for sure. So Fight for the Future is kind of a collective of artists and activists and software engineers that formed in 2012 in the lead up to the big fight over SOPA PIPA. So some of your listeners may remember when kind of the internet went dark. So Wikipedia, Google, thousands of other websites went black to protests, legislation that could have led to widespread internet censorship. So that's sort of our roots is kind of helping build the tech and messaging behind those massive online protests. And we've continued to sort of use that model of being sort of the outside force, perhaps EFF's angry little sister, if you will, in kind of mobilizing the grassroots to fight for a world where technology is primarily a force for good and empowerment rather than a force for tyranny and greed. Um, So we've applied those same grassroots pressure tactics around campaigns to ban the use of law enforcement facial recognition, to ban the use of facial recognition at music festivals and on college campuses. We've applied those tactics to fight for net neutrality and uh, oversight of the telecom industry. And most recently, we've been using them to fight for thoughtful regulation of large tech companies, as well as pushing back against dangerous legislation and proposals that we see as a threat to people's basic human rights in the digital age. Thank you for that. 
So we're going to talk here about the online speech implications of Dobbs, although, of course, that really can't be completely divorced from the data and privacy implications. To start more generally, though, can you describe for us the kinds of online speech that might be implicated in the broader post-Dobbs legal landscape? Yeah. So the first thing to understand when we're talking about online speech is it's important to be specific about kind of where we're discussing. So people tend to be mostly focused on speech on dominant tech platforms, and for good reason, because the rules that those platforms have in place impact the speech and kind of what people can see and hear for billions of people. Um, So those rules really do matter. That said, those rules are not absolute. There's a whole separate set of rules of what you can do uh, on your own website or on an an online platform that you yourself or your organization are hosting. But for the purposes of this conversation, I do think it's crucial that we focus in on large tech platforms like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and Twitter and how those platforms will change or not change their rules for speech in the wake of this frightening Supreme Court decision. And I think to understand that, we can look back at the ways that they've adapted their rules to kind of previous changes in the law. Um, SESTA-FOSTA is the big one that comes to mind, which I'm sure we'll get into later in the discussion, but also in terms of just how they react to public pressure. We've seen over the last couple of years tech platforms regularly making changes to their content moderation policies kind of based on news cycles. Um, They seem to primarily make these changes in response to public pressure um, or to kind of uh, for PR purposes rather than in a kind of thoughtful, slow, methodical way that is sort of centering human rights. And so, you know, but I would say that the thing that we need to be concerned about is tech platforms are very risk averse. They are interested in making money. They are not the defenders of free expression that they've perhaps positioned themselves to be. They are very happy to limit expression on their platforms if they feel it's necessary to do so in order to continue operating, doing business and making money. And we've seen that globally, certainly where tech platforms have sort of bent over backwards to accommodate the whims of authoritarian and repressive governments like the Turkish government or the Saudi Arabian government or the Chinese government. But we've also seen it here in the United States where when platforms are concerned about content that may be illegal or may be criminalized, they will err on the side of over-moderation, even if it means trampling on the free expression rights of marginalized people. And so when we head into a world where speech about abortion speech about abortion pills, speech about how to obtain an abortion, speech about aftercare after you've received an abortion, speech about fundraising for how to get an abortion or to travel to receive an abortion. In a world where that type of speech could become criminalized in many states in the U.S., we could see tech platforms engage in sort of a race to the bottom where they will comply with the most draconian laws in order to avoid uh, potential law enforcement action, litigation, or just bad PR. And that could have a profound impact on people's ability to use tech platforms to organize those types of activities that I was just describing, and also people's ability to use online platforms to seek out important information, medical information, health information, 
and information about access to reproductive health care. I think that was super helpful in sort of showing the very broad swath of speech that could be potentially implicated here. And I think the other thing that you really usefully highlighted is there's like, I guess, two factors here. There's the voluntary actions that companies may take uh, in light of Dobbs uh, to change their products. And then there's also the legislative steps that certain state uh, legislatures may take as well, laws. And of course, they can't be completely divorced because as you're saying, tech companies often take voluntary actions just because they're risk averse or because they aren't sure what the law says and and, and so want to just avoid the, the problem or even raising the question. But I think it is somewhat useful to break them out. And so let's start with the sort of legal issues and the law. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what kind of efforts there have been or you think will be to restrict this kind of speech in particular? Yeah. So the first thing to say is that forced birth anti-abortion activists have been very explicit about their desire to not just shut down abortion clinics, but to shut down the ability for people to organize around reproductive health. And so if you take, for example, the Right to Life Committee, which is one of the largest anti-abortion forced birth organizations in the country, they've outlined model legislation that they would like to see passed in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And that legislation includes specifically criminalizing posting online about facilitating an abortion. Um, So for example, some of the activities I just described, like telling someone how to get abortion pills or encouraging someone to get abortion pills, offering to mail abortion pills, even offering someone a place to stay if they come travel to your state in order to get an abortion. All the things that everyone has been doing in the wake of of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, all of the online fundraising and organizing, they would obviously like to see that criminalized. And so, you know, we see that in their model legislation. And that's legislation that is likely to pass in numerous states now that Roe has been overturned. We see the Texas law that will likely now go into effect in the wake of the Supreme Court decision um, has this language in it that, again, criminalizes anyone who facilitates an abortion. And it's written broadly enough that it absolutely can and will include, for example, people who are hosting a Facebook group that gives people advice on how to travel out of state in order to receive an abortion. Uh, people who are organizing fundraisers to facilitate that type of travel. And as has been discussed in the press, could even potentially sweep in an Uber driver who drives the person there or, you know, an online travel company that's booking flights for them. You know, this is so broadly written. There's so much potential for abuse that, again, we could very likely see this scenario where tech platforms err on the side of caution and just sort of say, you know what, we can't allow discussion of this type of stuff on our platform. And we've already kind of seen the sort of uh, harbingers of that. There was some stories a few weeks ago about um, Meta specifically removing posts where people were offering to mail abortion pills. They later claimed that this was done erroneously, that it was sort of an overzealous enforcement of an existing policy around offering to mail pharmaceuticals in general. But we can kind of see how, you know, if moderators are not sure, they've heard different things about the law. And they know they get in more trouble if they leave up something than if they take it down. They're going to err on the side of taking down speech. And in a world where there's a patchwork of laws around access to abortion, 
that could mean that online platforms suddenly become very difficult places for reproductive justice activists to use to uh, do the essential work that they are doing that's going to become more and more life and death every single day as abortion-related activities become more and more criminalized. And so I should say the second part of that, which is that the only reason that those state laws have not already led to that type of uh, tidal wave of over-removal is because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which, as of right now, crucially provides liability protection for online platforms, even if content potentially violates a state law. That is different than federal laws. Section 230 does not provide liability for criminal federal proceedings, but it does provide liability against uh, claims from state laws. And that is what is currently protecting abortion-related speech on platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If we did not have Section 230, every creepy state attorney general in every state that's attempting to force people to carry births that they don't want to could be suing the platforms right now, demanding that they take down all of that type of content, claiming that it violates their state law. And so that's where Section 230 comes into play here. And I really hope that this moment is a wake-up call, particularly for Democrats who have increasingly jumped on the bandwagon of criticizing Section 230 or calling to change Section 230 or weaken its liability protections. I hope that this moment helps them understand how much of a disaster that would be for marginalized people and for protecting speech about reproductive health, speech about gender-related affirming health care for trans folks, all kinds of other types of important speech that conservatives would love to criminalize and are actively trying to criminalize across the country right now. Yeah, I know Quinta wants to jump in and ask more of the specifics about the Section 230 issue, um, as do I. But before we go there, I just want to underline that the first point that you were making, which is sort of the breadth and ambiguity of these laws, and in particular, like like the patchwork created by many, many states, which is kind of the point. It's not to um, necessarily be so specific, because in the face of ambiguity, there's this chilling effect that we always talk about in the context of the First Amendment, both in terms of platforms being risk averse, but also in terms of individuals who don't uh, necessarily, you know, just want to or, or are cautious about exposing them uh, themselves to liability and in some case, very, very significant liability. And so, you know, no matter what your view of the substantive issue is here, that should be really, really concerning to you because there is at least no plausible argument that this is not a subject of real national and uh, public concern that should be debated. And so I think it's really important to focus on the, the the fact that not knowing how these laws apply is in fact part of the harm as well. That's exactly right. And I think it's part of the point, right? The goal here is to deny people access to reproductive health care. And one of the best ways to do that is to make people really confused and afraid and unsure of what their rights are in any given state or on any given online platform or what they could get in trouble for or not and to make doctors and healthcare providers have those same fears and confusion. Um, So I think that's very much the point. And then we see that extrapolated to the people who run social media companies. And I know that those are not the most sympathetic people in the world, um, right? You know, my organization is very active in fighting to hold big tech companies accountable for their many harms uh, to our society. But it is bad for the world 
when large social media platforms have to deal with this level of ambiguity around what types of content they can and can't allow. Again, because we can't trust them. We can't trust them to err on the side of doing what's right. They will always err on the side of covering their own ass. You know, in doing so, again, that often means removing broad swaths of legitimate speech that is is crucial right now. And I think that that is the thing to understand. You know, it's often portrayed if you're defending Section 230, you're defending the tech companies. And I think that's preposterous. Section 230 is first and foremost a protection for users. It's the law that makes it so that all of us, the ordinary people, the rabble, have platforms that are willing to host our speech because those platforms, until we're able to like get to that world where we have the utopian, decentralized, open source, you know, community-driven platforms with transparent nonprofit governance structures, we are in a world that's dominated by for-profit corporate platforms who care about making money. And those platforms are always going to, you know, have that responsibility to their shareholders more than they have that responsibility to human rights or uh, or certainly that inclination to fight for. I would argue they have a moral responsibility to uphold human rights, but they don't necessarily see it that way. So as Evelyn said, I do want to dig into the the 230 issue here. And, and I wonder whether one way to make it a little more concrete is to spin out a hypothetical. So let's say, let's go back to that national right to life uh, model legislation again and say that a state passes that into law while 230 is on the books in its current form. And a state attorney general tries to bring charges against, say, Google for serving ads um, about abortion clinics, for example, or, or whatever hypothetical you'd like. What does that litigation look like with 230 on the books? How does 230 protect Google there? Yeah, great question. And I think it is really helpful to get into these specifics. So right now, let's say that national right to life model law went into effect. A state attorney general goes after Google, claiming they're in violation of that state law by hosting an ad or, say, a YouTube video about uh, abortion access. That suit would be immediately dropped because Section 230 provides an affirmative defense for uh, user-generated content on Google's platform. It would probably cost Google, I don't know, a couple thousand bucks to send the letter to the court saying, Section 230, court says, right, no problem, it's over. Let's say that Section 230 had been weakened in almost any way where that state attorney general could say, could make a claim that Google has violated the law and is not protected by Section 230 because it has to do with this specific carve out around, let's say, medical misinformation. This was a bill that Senator Amy Klobuchar proposed to create a carve out in Section 230 for, quote unquote, medical misinformation as defined by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So let's say we're in a future where the Secretary of Health and Human Services has been uh, appointed by the DeSantis administration. I'm shuddering here in my basement. And that person has defined information about abortion to be medical misinformation. Now that lawsuit proceeds. Google might still win on the First Amendment. And this is the thing to understand here is that the First Amendment generally, broadly, should protect the vast majority of the speech that we're going to be talking about today. 
But Section 230 is essentially what enables the First Amendment to function at internet scale. Because if there is that chipping away of Section 230, it's not just one attorney general that can go after Google for this content. Under the Texas law, it could be any individual could sue Google for facilitating an abortion after a certain number of weeks. So you could have thousands of lawsuits. And again, maybe Google would eventually win those lawsuits, but each one could end up costing half a million dollars easily. That starts to add up, even for a company the size of Google. And so what you could likely see is Google's not going to go to bat for people seeking and providing abortions. They're not going to spend a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars fighting in court you know, to stand up for what's right. They're just going to say, you know what, we've had to change the rules uh, and no, we can no longer, you know, provide advertising for uh, people providing abortions um, or for any, you know, and maybe they'll, they'll, they'll totally both sides it, right? They'll like institute a new policy that says we do not allow advertising in, you know, for or against abortion, right? That's the, that will be their way of wiggling out of it. That could have a devastating effect for reproductive health advocates on the ground trying to get accurate information about how to receive an abortion to people who are, are trying to find that information. So I think it is very helpful to get into these specific scenarios. A number of top Democrats supported a bill called the Safe Tech Act. And this is what I would consider to be one of the more well-intentioned proposed changes to Section 230. But again, unfortunately, it was so broadly written that it essentially would create a carve-out in Section 230 for platforms hosting any content that could lead to quote unquote irreparable harm. Now, I don't need to like stretch your audience's imagination to imagine how Ken Paxton or some other forced birth far right attorney general might interpret that phrasing of irreparable harm and use it to go after platforms that host speech or fundraising about abortion. So that's another example of, again, well-intentioned legislation. The goal is to like, you know, get the Nazis and like, you know, fake opioids and like terrible stuff off the internet. But it's another example of how that's not as simple as lawmakers want it to be. There is not some magical switch that you can flip that will lead to platforms taking down all the bad stuff and leaving up all the good stuff. We need thoughtful policies that try to strike at the harm of these platforms at their root rather than taking a sledgehammer to online free expression at a time when online platforms and speech about abortion um, are, again, going to be a matter of life and death for millions of people in states where abortion is criminalized. Yeah, I'm really glad you made that point about, you know, this is First Amendment protected speech, so it's not the case that these lawsuits would be successful if not for Section 230, because I think that's a point that's elided in many other contexts as well. Like, for example, pieces of legislation that you mentioned about criminalizing medical uh, mis- and disinformation, or for example, you know, legislation or complaints about hate speech on platforms. You know, the idea that that stuff only exists because of Section 230. Well, the answer is no, it's a First Amendment protected speech, but it's that procedural benefits of Section 230, and in particular for smaller platforms, that's really important. And we shouldn't lose sight of that in this context either. So thank you for making that point. Well, and the other thing is, I wish I could say that I was confident in this Supreme Court um, right. <laughs> to, you know, to really interpret the First Amendment the way that they should. But I think it's, you know, it's really concerning. You know, Section 230 is certainly an amazing safeguard here. But it, I'm significantly worried about the Supreme Court 
uh, this Supreme Court upholding some of these terrible state laws that clearly and blatantly violate the First Amendment. But we're not dealing with a, a very, um, you know, with a Supreme Court that cares about um, human rights and free expression. So I think we should keep that in mind that it's not a it's not a fail safe. I think that's a very important point, too, that I've written about in other contexts. Like so much of the First Amendment is actually quite up for grabs. Um, we think of it as this sort of static, uh, you know, set in stone right from the founding piece of uh, law, but actually, you know, is actually very much in a state of flux and particularly around online expression at the moment. It's very unpredictable um, what this court might do. And of course, abortion has always been a somewhat of a First Amendment sort of warping feel, like a, a, a has a bit of a force field around it. So I think that that's a, a really good, important point to make. And so then I guess the question is, do you think the Democrats in this context will, you know, wake up to the idea that, you know, if they pass some of the Section 230 reform bills that they are thinking or have proposed, they will have to reckon with the fact that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so if you pass these bills hoping to crack down on misinformation or hate speech or whatever other kind of speech it is that you're particularly concerned about in the hands of another administration, that can be targeted at speech that you definitely think should be protected. Do you think there's any sign that the politics around this uh, could change it all? Or, you know, sometimes I wonder whether, you know, the, the people aren't necessarily so concerned about how laws might actually work in practice so much as the political posturing, and in which case, maybe not necessarily. Maybe that's still too naive to expect that they might change their minds. All I can say is that I really hope so. And I see it as the work of of my organization and others to to try to educate lawmakers and and get them to understand this better. And to push back when lawmakers are sort of blatantly posturing and playing to their base by pushing for legislation that would do more harm than good. You know, I will say it gives me hope to see so many uh, lawmakers kind of coming out and saying clearly that they want to do something around the data privacy and surveillance element of this. And, you know, more and more Democrats particularly waking up and recognizing that the surveillance state that has been built can and will be weaponized against people who are seeking, providing, and facilitating abortions. And I hope that they'll have that same wake-up call around online speech, content moderation, and freedom of expression. Um, we did see some Senate Democrats send a letter to Meta about the removal of abortion-related posts. Um, and so, again, I do think people are starting to pay attention to this. And one of the things I'll just say here is that you know, part of what has happened is that because the far right has so cynically attempted to co-opt the frame of free speech and created this sort of victim narrative around we're being censored on social media, um, it's created, there's sort of been a, a mirror image backsliding um, around the value of free expression on the left. And I, I, I have been, <laughs> I would say maybe one of the few people kind of trying to push back against that and trying to remind everyone that, broadly speaking, when we demand that online platforms remove more content faster, it's often the most marginalized people, the people with the least power, whose speech is the most silenced. And that even when we do it with the best of intentions, the power structures in our society sort of dictate that censorship broadly upholds the status quo and the power structures that exist. And those power structures right now are white supremacy and patriarchy and heterosexism. And so when we, you know, kind of pour more fuel on the fire of removal and suppression of speech, 
that tends to be the result. And so I hope that this moment when speech that is broadly accepted on the left as good is very likely to be criminalized. And again, the, the discussion around abortion access is one piece of this, but there's also been significant discussion in the wake of this Supreme Court decision about what the future of online speech around LGBTQ issues is, particularly around gender-related health care for kids, which we've already seen legislation in a number of states attempting to criminalize, providing, facilitating, again, very similar, very broad language that absolutely could lead to a world where platforms decide they can't allow you to post a link about how to find gender-affirming health care for your kid. And I can say as a trans person and someone with a kid, you know, that's a really frightening thought, especially for people who are living in places where their child's uh, health care could be criminalized. Those online resources are a lifeline. And if we make it more difficult for families to find that kind of support online, it will lead to real and immediate harm for some of the most vulnerable and marginalized members of our society. So speaking of of how uh, censorship and, and removing speech tends to redound to the harm of the most vulnerable people, we'd mentioned uh, SESTA-FOSTA earlier, and I wanted to make sure we came back to that and give context for listeners who maybe aren't familiar. Can you explain for, for the benefit of our audience what FOSTA is, what its impact was, and how it's kind of a, a cautionary tale in this context? Yeah, Absolutely. So SESTA-FOSTA was a law that was passed in 2018. It was signed. And it was framed as a bill to crack down on online sex trafficking, which, of course, is something everyone agrees we should do, um, trying to address what is a real issue in our society and something that you know w- we certainly need solutions for. Unfortunately, SESTA-FOSTA did the opposite. It actually, uh, from many experts' research, may have made it more difficult for law enforcement to crack down on actual trafficking, and it led to widespread removal and censorship of online content from consensual sex workers and shutting down of online spaces that sex workers use to keep themselves safe. So to give an example, many sex workers maintained what are sort of known as collective bad date lists. So a date, a list of clients that had been violent or abusive um, so that you know not to, not to work with them. That is a concrete thing that folks were using online to protect themselves. And the websites that once hosted those types of collective acts of safety were unwilling to host them in a world where they could face potential massive liability for doing so. And so we saw this tidal wave of removal where platforms like Craigslist and Tumblr shut down entire sections of their websites for fear of liability. We've seen in the wake of it widespread deplatforming and demonetization of consensual sex workers, adult online creators, and even just artists, you know, LGBTQ artists who are, you know, painting nudes or have some Uh, vaguely sexual element to their art, or in fact, just art that is considered sexual because it was created by a queer or trans person. And so we saw this kind of massive removal of content, shuttering of online spaces, 
And that led to real world harm. We know from research um, led by sex workers and sex work harm reduction organizations that in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA, there was an uptick in murders, in violent attacks of sex workers who were forced back out on the street because the online spaces that they used to do their work more safely were shut down. Uh, we know that there was an uptick in self-harm and suicides, an uptick in arrests as sex workers were forced back into doing work that was more heavily surveilled and criminalized. And so this was a bill that passed overwhelmingly because no lawmaker wants to put their name on voting against the bill to crack down on sex trafficking. But the reality is this wasn't a bill to crack down on sex trafficking. It was a posturing bill that led to real world death and enormous harm. And so sex workers and black and brown activists and LGBTQ activists have been sounding the alarm about this for years. And unfortunately, they've largely been ignored, not just by lawmakers and Democrats, but to be really blunt, by major civil rights organizations, by major progressive organizations who have repeatedly called for changes to Section 230 while ignoring these warnings from sex workers and LGBTQ folks who were deeply harmed in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA. We've started to see some of that change, which I think is really positive. My organization, Fight for the Future, led a letter signed by more than 70 racial justice, human rights, LGBTQ, and sex work organizations um, calling on lawmakers to avoid uncareful changes to Section 230 and instead calling for them to pass the Safe Sex Workers Study Act, which would commission a government study of the harm done by SESTA-FOSTA so that lawmakers could at the very least do their due diligence and kind of assess what happened the last time they changed Section 230 before rushing to change it again. Yeah, I think it's a really important law to keep in mind and is one that uh, I would argue has been understudied as an example of what happens when you make changes to 230, maybe without uh, carefully thinking through what, what the results may be. And I think that, you know, FOSTA is a great example of how, as we discussed earlier, you can have a carve out that might look narrow, but it can end up chilling an enormous amount of speech outside that because platforms are risk averse. And so so one of the things I, I wanted to bring up also is that, you know, we've seen in the wake of FOSTA, which, you know, is a confusingly drafted statute, um, even in the best light, um, we've seen some creative interpretations by judges, including a, a ruling by the Texas Supreme Court that essentially read FOSTA to allow lawsuits that the statute explicitly did not permit. And this has led me to wonder whether we might expect to see efforts to litigate similarly creative interpretations of Section 230 or, for that matter, of the First Amendment to try to you know, get around these liability protections and hold platforms liable for information regarding abortion among the state laws or potential state laws that we've been discussing. Do you think that's right? Is that something that you're worried about? Absolutely. I mean, look, anti-abortion extremists are some of the most lawyered up people in this country. They are extremely litigious. It's been one of their favorite strategies for years. And they're highly motivated to get content about abortion scrubbed from the internet. They're also very well connected to many of the far right groups that have been trying to scrub porn, adult content, LGBTQ content from the internet. Uh, many of those groups are behind the Earn It Act, which is one of the most dangerous proposed changes to Section 230 we've seen 
in recent years. And so, you know, they they are at, right now, while we are recording this podcast, there are a bunch of anti-abortion lawyers in a room trying to figure out all the different attack surfaces that they now have. Again, not just to shut down abortion clinics, but to shut down online spaces where people are talking about facilitating fundraising for and communicating about healthy, important, accurate access and information about abortion. Wow, that was a word salad there, but (laughs) you got what I meant, I think, um, that yes, I am worried about that. And it's important to just remember here that in the end, it's always up to some judge. And there's a lot of judges in this country that were, were nominated and confirmed by pretty terrible people. And so, you know, the law is never uh, a, a sure bet. And, you know, and again, that's why in the end, you know, as Evelyn said at the, at the start, right, our conversation here is just one small piece of this. And so much of the work that's happening right now is going to be on the ground and often perhaps offline um, of really providing the types of support and resources that people are going to need. But I, I do see it as one small place that we in the tech space can try to make a difference is to fight tooth and nail to protect online speech about abortion access and fight tooth and nail to shut down the corporate and government surveillance apparatuses that are going to be weaponized against people who are seeking, providing, and facilitating abortions. So I want to play devil's advocate and bring up a counterexample that people who are concerned about abortion rights and reproductive rights may be less sympathetic to, uh, or almost certainly, uh, this data says they will almost all certainly be uh, in favor of gun control and very concerned about online speech, about, you know, gun sales and, and that kind of content. And I think that that's, you know, an area that in some ways can be seen to be similar. So there's a lot of state by state divergence in the laws uh, around gun control. You can imagine states with more restrictive gun laws wanting to make sure that other states don't run ads or advocate for things that would be against that state's laws. Uh, And I'm curious how you see that both in terms of when we think about private companies, their content moderation rules, whether there's any, and also the laws and how um, we should think about the patchwork of laws here. Do you think that there are, because this is an argument that I see come up in certain contexts or is raised often as a counterexample. What do you make of it? Is it a similar kind of situation or how could we distinguish them? Yeah, I don't think it's like in, t- in a different universe. And another one that's perhaps, you know, less co- immediately controversial is cannabis and marijuana, right? Where there's some states where you can run ads for your marijuana company and other states where that is very much against the law. And, you know, social media platforms are having to figure out how to navigate that. Um, and I my understanding is in that case, again, as we've discussed, they've often erred on the side of caution, where if something's not legal federally, and they're not sure they're going to err on the side of being safe, right? And so, you know, in terms of your counterexample, I think, again, it's less about, you know, is that a real problem? Yeah, of course, that's a real problem. (laughs) The question is, what do you do about it? What can you do about it? And what can you do about it without creating a whole bunch of new problems? And I would argue that there's nothing that you can do tinkering around the edges of Section 230 that will make it meaningfully harder to buy a gun on the internet without also making it meaningfully harder to fundraise to help someone travel out of state to receive an abortion or make it meaningfully harder for people to organize protests for racial justice or uh, human rights or climate justice in their communities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so again, I think it's not that 
we can't have real conversations about real problems. It's that we need to be real about what the trade-offs are. And I think that's the piece that is often missed here. People, again, want there to be that magical button that they can press that will take all the gun sales off the internet, but leave up all the abortion fundraising. And unfortunately, the law is tends to not be a very surgical instrument. And so when you start meddling with a foundational law like Section 230, you may often may not end up with the results that you crave. Then, But what I would say is that's not to say that we can't do anything, right? And I think this is really important because tech companies would love for us to just sort of like stay debating Section 230 forever, never pass anything or do anything, and they can kind of just keep getting away with murder and making tons of money without any meaningful accountability. Uh, my organization has fought very hard for a federal privacy law, which we think would actually do significantly more to address um, things like online viral disinformation and hateful content than any kind of law that attempts to criminalize or undermine the ability to host speech. Um, to give a concrete example there, it's one thing to allow someone to post their totally bogus information you know, about abortion to try to deter people from getting abortions. It's another thing for a company like Facebook or Instagram to artificially amplify that content and essentially use surveillance to algorithmically recommend it to people who they think are very likely to engage with it. Um, those are two very different things. The thing that makes Facebook different from Cosmo or a magazine or cable TV is the surveillance, the data collection. And so that's where we think we can have a real intervention that could reduce harm without creating new harms. We've also been supporting, as you probably know, um, some of the anti-monopoly bills that would crack down on big tech platforms' self-preferencing practices, which we see as paving the way for a future where we could have more choices, where alternative services with better content moderation, better privacy, more transparency could thrive, um, or at least begin to compete and build that network effect to be a useful service in a world where currently there's so few platforms that have so much power over what can be seen and heard and done online. So I do think it's important that we don't just throw up our hands and say, you know, well, there's nothing that can be done because if we change Section 230, things will just get worse. It's just that there are other areas where lawmakers should be focused, other interventions that could lead to a reduction of harm without creating, uh, you know, kind of a cornucopia of new harms, which is what um, I see and many other experts see as the very likely outcome of any changes to Section 230. Let's talk more about the data privacy aspect, because I know Fight for the Future has has argued and others have argued that taking action uh, when it comes to data collection, data privacy is something that companies should think about in the wake of Dobbs. What is the connection between data collection and retention and the post-Dobbs legal landscape around abortion? Yeah, I mean, the reality is that we're living in a world where corporate surveillance provides the foundation for enormous swaths of law enforcement. And so when certain activities become criminalized, surveillance is the mechanism that that criminalization will be enforced. And we've already seen in the recent past, for example, women being prosecuted, women who've had miscarriages being prosecuted based on text messages or based on online searches for abortion pills. And so the reality is that every company that collects and retains sensitive personal data is sort of a sitting target 
for attorneys general and other law enforcement entities who are actively going to be attempting to crack down on people who are seeking, providing, and facilitating abortions. So from my perspective, I think every single company needs to be having emergency meetings with their engineers, their policy people, and everybody else getting on board to figure out what data do we have and collect and store that can and will be weaponized and used to target and prosecute abortion seekers and providers? And how can we get rid of it and stop collecting it? How can we change our business models that it's not dependent on collecting and storing data like that, that could be used to do enormous harm? And I think, you know, we've seen some moves in that direction. So for example, Fight for the Future and about 50 other organizations led a letter echoing a letter sent by about 40 lawmakers calling on Google to stop collecting and storing a certain type of cell phone location data that could be used to kind of prosecute or prove that someone was in the vicinity of an abortion clinic at a certain time. Google has said that they are going to essentially obscure that information by deleting data around sensitive locations. Um, I have some a lot of questions and concerns about what that actually means in practice, but the fact that they've said anything is a sign that companies are thinking about this. And I would argue, more importantly, that their employees, that there are people who work at these companies who genuinely care and want to do something. And what they need, from my perspective, is a massive grassroots groundswell of support um, so that they can fight internally for real change. Because what's going to happen is these companies have built their entire business model on data collection and surveillance. It is the root of their power and the root of their profit. And so they're going to get a lot of pushback from up top of any proposal that leads to collecting and storing less data. But the reality is that's the only thing that's going to fix this. There's no magical engineering solution for being a massive kind of surface area of attack for government surveillance other than limiting the amount of data that you collect and retain in the first place. And so obviously in the long run, that's something that we need lawmakers and the Federal Trade Commission to mandate so that we don't have to hope and pray and you know protest outside of Facebook and Google headquarters to demand it. But in the immediate, it's something that we need to fight for and demand that they act on right now. And I do think it's important that we keep our view broad. There's been kind of a lot of viral coverage and stories around, for example, menstrual tracking apps as like one specific type of app um, that has a specific type of data that obviously and understandably people are really concerned about being used to target um, or prosecute people who are seeking or providing abortions. But the reality is like some random game on your phone that you're playing while you're sitting in the waiting room could just as easily snitch out your location or other sensitive data to law enforcement as a period tracking app. And so we need to kind of have a comprehensive view and recognize that you know it's not just one type of app, it's not just Google, it's not just Facebook, it's not just Amazon, it's the entire tech industry needs to have a wake-up call and a reckoning around this moment. And again, kind of like with Democrats around speech, I hope the industry has a bit of a, a come-to-Jesus moment and recognizes we've built something really dangerous. We've built an internet economy 
based on a business model that's fundamentally incompatible with basic human rights. And in a world where abortion healthcare is criminalized, that just comes so clearly into focus. And I really do hope that it's a moment of reckoning that leads to some real change in the industry and a future where we can have online spaces and services that are still useful and powerful and connect the world and give all of us a voice, but that are not driven by this massive data collection and surveillance that puts so many people in danger. I'm really sad because all of that sounds a lot harder than just deleting my period tracking app. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I guess we've sort of been here before. The idea that, you know, I'll just delete the app or putting personal responsibility front and center to dealing with these structural problems. And I'd just love to draw you out a little bit more on that. You know, this idea that uh, consumers have lots of choice or they could just delete the blue app on their phone or, or things like that. How do you think about that in your advocacy about the idea of turning to individual responsibility and, you know, people focusing on personal choice and and personal responsibility to deal with these structural problems. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like the favorite like libertarian reply guy on Twitter, right? Is like, well, just don't use it then if you don't like it, which just utterly ignores the reality that these platforms have an impact, not just on their users, but on our entire society. And then, you, you know, you sort of couple that with the fact that like, if you're a small business owner or a musician or an artist or a writer or any number of other things, it might not be an option to not use one of these platforms. You know, for the vast majority of us, our entire lives are kind of connected to the internet in some way, which means that we are, you know, often leaking data, sensitive data about ourselves in all kinds of different ways, whether it's paying your taxes or registering your kids for school or your online health records that your doctor has um, that are in your inbox or stored in the cloud somewhere. All of that is an attack surface. And, you know, for the, for the most part, a lot of that is not really optional for most people. But beyond that, I just think it's important that we get past that individualist notion that like our individual consumer choices are the main driver of the harm or the main solution. You know, the same is true with climate change. We're not going to solve climate change by changing the light bulbs in our houses. It's a collective problem that needs to be solved with policy that leads to a massive restructuring of our economy um, away from fossil fuels. That's not something that individual people can accomplish by themselves or should be expected to. And in fact, it's kind of a big cop-out or a narrative that's been very heavily pushed by industries that are heavily invested in maintaining the status quo because it's really disempowering. It makes it sort of like, well, you know, shop at Whole Foods and, you know, get a Prius or whatever. Um, when the reality is, you know, we should be camped outside our lawmakers' offices demanding that they actually do something about this. The same is really true with privacy. Yes, we absolutely should educate each other, support our friends and family and loved ones in improving their digital security, taking basic precautions to protect themselves. Yes, in a world where abortion is criminalized, we absolutely should be conducting trainings and providing support for advocates who are on the ground, who are going to have a heightened need for digital security and protecting their privacy. But that can't be where we stop. We need to fight for collective change and institutional change and structural change um, because it shouldn't be up to an individual person, particularly someone who is vulnerable and perhaps who's in a moment of crisis, they, you know, figuring out which app they need to delete on their phone should not be at the top of their mind. 
we need to provide protections for everyone, not just people who are you know, super tech savvy or have access to an iPhone or expensive device. Um, this needs to be about fighting for a world where everyone has these basic protections and human rights. They don't need to toggle them on and off. So speaking of of that broader systemic change, you've, you've touched a little bit on the kinds of legal reforms that Fight for the Future has been advocating, but I wanted to close by giving you an opportunity to go into that in more depth. What kind of things would you like to see to address these problems? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, this situation really illuminates why the framework of notice and consent, which has been the sort of dominant framework for privacy regulation that has been pushed by the industry is utterly insufficient. You know, their idea of consent is very distorted. Uh, We have a notion in romantic relationships that you can't give consent to your boss. You can't give consent if you're intoxicated. You can't give consent to someone that has enormous positional power, your teacher or someone who has enormous positional power over you. Because we recognize that those power imbalances make it impossible to give meaningful consent. The same is true between an individual and a tech company the size of Amazon. The power imbalance between an individual and a company of that size is so great that I would argue it's impossible for a person to give meaningful consent for very sensitive data to be collected and stored in a world where that data could be used to do enormous harm to them or their family. It's also impossible to give meaningful consent when the vast majority of people are utterly unaware of what the risks associated with handing sensitive private information over to a private company are. And so from my perspective, that's why we need regulation that's based on broad prohibitions of abusive collection and use of data, rather than on just creating more checkboxes, more hoops to jump through, Um, where companies can just say, you know, well, you need to check this box to use our service. And then once you do, we can do whatever we want. That's not meaningful consent and that's not meaningful protection. And so, you know, gosh, we could get into the sausage making of what's going on with the latest, you know, iteration of a potential privacy bill in Washington, D.C. and what's been going on in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and there are, you know, like real calculations to be made about, you know, accepting compromises and, you know, what is the best that we could get for now and is something better than nothing. But what I would say is in the long run, what we need is to identify explicitly harmful and discriminatory and abusive uses and collection of data and ban it rather than simply creating a framework that is sort of industry friendly and with a goal of basically just setting some rules for the road so that they can move full steam ahead with a business model that is based on vacuuming up as much data as possible and figuring out how to extract as much profit from that data as they can. All right, let's leave it there. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to chat with you all. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, as well as our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. 
This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell. And our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.